Okay, this passage that we're about to look at this morning is a bit of a pivot passage in the book of Mark. Remember last week we saw how popular Jesus was? All the miracles he was performing, the crowds gathering, the fame of Jesus throughout the region of Galilee. But all of us who are gathered here today know that he could not have remained popular always with everyone because after all, we know how the story ends. He was eventually crucified. Now, the religious leaders uh, eventually got to the point where they despised his popularity and caused the people to rise up against him. So we know that that's coming in the story. We know that Jesus is going to be crucified. And the hostility that Jesus is going to experience, really, Mark presents it as beginning in this story that we're going to look at this morning. And not just in this story, but in the four short stories that follow this story. Today, we're going to see the religious leaders object to Jesus's claim to forgive a paralyzed man of his sin. And after that, we're going to see four shorter stories. We'll see the religious establishment wonder why Jesus ate with sinners. We're going to see them wonder why, why Jesus' disciples did not fast, why he broke their Sabbath rules, and why he healed on the Sabbath itself. And in each one of these episodes, we're going to see Jesus supersede, rise above even the Torah, the law, and the traditions of the elders. He's not going to act like they thought the Christ or the Messiah would act. And so in these weeks that follow, as we look at each one of these stories, we're going to see Jesus run afoul of the religious establishment. Okay, here's what we're going to do, though, today for this first story. We're just going to look at the first story, verse 1 through 12, the healing uh, and forgiving of this paralyzed man. And what we're going to do, I'm, I'm just going to kind of read through the story, and, and I'll pause as we're reading through it to kind of explain the context, the setting, what was happening inside the story. And then uh, that'll take us about 20 minutes, and once we get done with that, I'll draw out for you four distinct uh, uh, applications that I think Mark wants us to receive. Uh, from this story, four lessons, so to speak. So let's start out by looking at the episode in verse 1 and following. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Okay, let's stop there at that point. Remember last week we saw Jesus adopt this particular city, the city of Capernaum, as his new hometown. And he probably did that because that was the hometown of um, Peter and Andrew and James and John. So their hometown became his hometown. Nazareth couldn't be his hometown any longer, so now his hometown is Capernaum. And it was there we saw last week that he cast out the demon from the man in the synagogue that he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and he launched into this massive day of healing and deliverance. You remember that? Just nod your head like, yes, we remember that. We were here last week. But also remember how he didn't want to be known as a mere miracle worker. That's not what he wanted people to see him as. And so he went out into the wilderness. He prayed to his father. The father directed him to go to various towns to preach also into these other places. And so he went on a circuit of preaching and teaching, cleansed the leper, and now here we see him returning after some days, Mark says in verse 1, to uh, the city of Capernaum. And Mark wants us to know that when he returns to Capernaum, Jesus is still popular. 
Uh, the second he gets back, notice how Mark talks about it. He says that people began reporting, in verse 1, on Jesus' whereabouts. You know, word just gets around town. Jesus is here. And once, he's, once they hear that he's in the house, uh, probably the house of Peter, uh, many people gather together, Mark says in verse 2. And then Mark describes it like this. He says in verse 2, there was no room, not even at the door. Now, houses in that era and area were more than likely very small, uh, one-bedroom kind of houses. So the images of Jesus inside of this home, people gathered in and then spilling out of the home and onto the street. And so Mark is presenting Jesus as a popular, as famous, at least, to a degree at this moment. But he's also careful not to present Jesus as a miracle worker. Uh, he is there in verse 2, preaching the word to them. Preaching the word to them. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that's why the people were there that day? Do you think that they gathered together at the door so that they could listen to Jesus give a Bible study? No, more than likely they were there to watch miracles, right? They'd heard of Jesus, the thing that he'd done, but they gather together and he gives them not what they want, but he gives them what they need. And he speaks the word into their life. Now, this theme, this theme that Mark is presenting here of the crowds coming to, be, uh, to, to follow Jesus, to see something from Jesus, this is going to be a constant theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Over 40 times, uh, or nearly 40 times, Mark is going to refer to the crowds that follow Jesus. And when he refers to them, uh, he doesn't refer to them in a positive sense. He portrays the crowds as generally passive fickle, and never an evidence of Jesus's ministry success. Instead, as we read through the book of Mark, what we're to be rooting for is for the crowds to turn around, repent, and get into the kingdom, to, to get the real Jesus, to know who he really is. But alas, uh, for the most part through the book of Mark, they don't get that, and they're just constantly drawn to the external, the miracles, the stuff that Jesus can do, rather than the true message that Jesus brought. Okay, let's go on reading in the story in verse 3 and 4. It says, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, I, I love Mark's writing style. He, if you look at this paragraph, at least the way the English Standard Version translators have put it, they, they start so many of the sentences. He started so many of the sentence with, sentences with the word and. I can hear my high school English teachers, you know, screaming at Mark right now. Like, you can't start a sentence that way. He, you know, he starts sentences like and when or and immediately and he. And he starts verse 3 with, with this phrase. He says, and they came. And they came. I like it. It's just so suspenseful. Like, who came? What happened? You know, Jesus' teaching is going to be interrupted, but who interrupted his teaching? And Mark tells us that it was four men. Four men who were carrying a paralyzed man on his bed. And obviously what they wanted was for Jesus to heal this man of his paralysis. But when they got to the house, Mark tells us that they, when they saw the house was overflowing, they decided to go to the rooftop and remove the roof above Jesus, make an opening, and lower him down uh, to Jesus. Now, this comes as a shock to us as we read the story. Like, oh, that's interesting. 
You know, and, and in our modern era, it's especially interesting. You know, we, we imagine, you know, our, our sloped roofs, our firm construction. You know, we're wondering, like, did they get out electric saws and, you know, start carving up, you know, this house? Did they use a sledgehammer? Did they wear safety glasses? You know, did they even get a permit for this, you know, kind of thing? <laughs> but houses in that era were actually conducive to these events. Uh, like I said, they were small. The roof would have been flat, uh, made from a combination of wood beams and clay and mud and plaster and branches and sometimes even tile. And what they would do in that era, without air conditioning and all of that, is they would build a staircase leading up to their rooftop so that they could use it as a place like a balcony to get uh, fresh air or to find solitude like Peter did in the book of Acts when he went to the rooftop uh, to pray to the Lord, or to dry laundry or do different things like that. Um, and so with the materials that they would have built their roofs with, uh, one could quite literally, and this is the way Mark actually sp speaks of it in the Greek language, dig the roof up. Okay, You could actually dig a roof up. But still, this was a noteworthy event. Okay, It's not like Sometimes I hear commentators describe this, you know, like this was a, something that you could do in that era. It's not like they went around digging each other's roofs up, you know. It wasn't a common thing. This was a shock to even them. And I think especially Peter was shocked by it because it was his house. <laughs> you know, and he's telling Mark about this, like, can you believe it? You know, they couldn't just wait their turn and stand outside. They'd start digging my roof up and, the, you know, everything's coming down. Everyone was shocked. Okay, notice what happens next, though. Something even more shocking. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, verse 5, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Okay, this is meant by Mark to be the major movement of the story. It's meant to jolt us, because here's Jesus. He sees this paralyzed man being lowered down by these four men. This didn't take two minutes to do. The roof is shaking, stuff is crumbling and falling. They awkwardly lower this man down. Everybody's expecting Jesus to heal this man, and the question is, can he do it? But instead of being, bringing a healing, Jesus looks at this man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so instead of healing, he gave forgiveness. And we'll talk about this in a moment. But there were scribes that were there that day. And they had come to listen to and observe Jesus. Now, what the scribes were were experts in the Torah, experts in the law, experts in the Scripture. A good scribe or an example of a good scribe in Scripture would be uh, the man Ezra, whom the book of Ezra is named after. He was probably the most famous scribe in Israel's history. He loved the Bible, he remembered the Bible, studied the Bible, copied the Bible, and taught the Bible to the people of Israel. He was a good man. But by this time, the scribes had kind of sucked the life and love and joy out of scribal work. And by the time they came around, they, by the time Jesus came around, they were just kind of like legal experts. They were experts uh, about their opinions of the law, but also the traditions of the elders. And uh, many people even just referred to, to them as, as lawyers, they, because it was like, there's the law, they were experts in the law. They could find every loophole, they knew the law backwards and forwards. Uh, 
And one of their expert opinions that they had was said in verse 7, God alone can forgive sin. That was, that was their expert opinion. Only God can forgive sin. And on this opinion, they are absolutely right. Ultimately, only God can forgive sins. Now, we apologize to each other. That's a good and right thing for us to do. I see we've taught our kids in our house to apologize. There's apologies happening all day long in our house. Um, and we've, we, we also forgive each other, right? You know, I forgive you. You know, it's okay. Yeah, I forgive you. But ultimate forgiveness and the ultimate elimination of sin, it has to come from God. It has to come from God. And why is that? Well, because at the end of the day, all sin is ultimately a rejection of God's law. Either his law is revealed in nature or his law is revealed in human conscience or his law is revealed in scripture. Every sin that we commit is a, is a violation of one of those forms of God's law. So ultimately, we need God's forgiveness. That's why they thought, ultimately, only God can forgive sins. And so when they heard Jesus forgive the man, it made them question who Jesus thinks he is in their hearts. Who is this man that he would forgive this man of sins? Immediately, though, moving on in the story, verse 8, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say uh, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Okay, and in this part of the story, Mark tells us in verse 8 that Jesus perceived in his spirit what the scribes were thinking. Now, it's possible that Mark is telling us that Jesus tapped into the privileges of his divinity in that moment, but I think it's unlikely that that's what he's alluding to. It might be that Mark is just saying it was super obvious what the scribes were thinking. There they are over in the corner with their angry faces, they're whispering and muttering to each other, and Jesus looks at them and realizes, oh, you think that it was wrong for me to forgive a man of his sins. Personally, I don't think it was either of those things happening. I think that this was what Paul talked about as the gift of the discerning of spirits in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. I think the Holy Spirit gave Jesus that insight into what was happening inside of the scribes' hearts in that moment. But after Jesus learned the thoughts of the scribes, he questioned them. And he asked them why they questioned these things in their hearts. And then he asked them, what's easier to say? And he gave them two options. Did you see it there? He asked them, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, it's good for us to think about that question, too. What is easier to say? To, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and take up your bed and walk? Well, if Jesus had asked the question, which is easier to produce? In other words, what's easier for me to perform, forgiveness or healing? The answer to that question would be healing. Healing is easier for Jesus to perform. Because as we go through the Gospel of Mark, what we discover is that for Jesus to produce the forgiveness of sins, he would have to suffer and die on a cross for the sin of the world. It would be his most terrible, most difficult work that he ever did. So if Jesus is asking what is easier to perform, healing was far and away easier for Jesus to perform 
than the forgiveness of sin. But I don't think he's asking that. I think he's actually asking what is easier to say or what is easier to claim. In other words, it's easier to claim forgiveness because it's, uh, it's, it's not an objective thing. It's subjective. When you tell a person with paralysis to arise, everyone will know if they've been healed or not. You know, like, hey, get up right now. Everybody there can watch. But if you tell someone who's in sin that they've been forgiven, well, they might have some kind of internal sense of peace, but it's not something that everybody else in the room can see. And so I think Jesus was drawing uh, his, their attention to that reality. So then after he questioned him, Jesus turned to the man and said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, verse 10, I say to you, to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Okay, now, Jesus, you notice there in verse 10, called himself the Son of Man. And this is his most um, popular or, or uh, his, his favorite title for himself in the Gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man. And usually when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, it's in private with disciples who know that he's the Christ. And that's really what we're going to see in chapter 9 following. He's going to call himself the Son of Man quite often to his disciples. Before that point in chapter 9, he's only going to call himself the Son of Man twice. Some people even think that this is not Jesus calling himself the Son of Man in this passage, but Mark giving an editorial comment about what Jesus was doing. So that everybody would know that the Son of Man has a power on earth to forgive sins. This is what Jesus said, said Mark, or something like that. So when we get there to chapter 9, I'll talk about this title, the Son of Man, and what it means, what it indicates. Uh, but for now, notice the response to Jesus' words of healing. It says, verse 12, the man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Everybody there, they're just amazed. They glorify God. Some people even think, because of the way that Mark wrote it, that the scribes are thrown into that group. It says that they all, you know, were amazed and glorified God. No one there had ever seen anything like this. A man forgiven, and then a man with an extreme disability being healed right in their presence. They'd just seen nothing like it. It just amazed them. Okay. So that's the story. What should we learn from this story? Well, I could give you like 20 things that we should learn, but I decided to focus on four, okay? So let's look at these four. Here's number one. The first thing I think we need to learn from this story or, or this story is trying to communicate is that Jesus is divine. The whole passage points to the divinity, the godhood, the deity of Jesus. First of all, he heals a tremendously hard case. Okay, they'd never seen anybody fixed from uh, a paralysis like this. Uh, also, no, no one, uh, or Jesus here is presented as perceiving the thoughts of the scribes. But the big reason that this points to the divinity of Jesus is because of how his interaction with the scribes. They understood forgiveness as something only God could grant. They thought that Jesus was blaspheming when he took up a divine activity and granted forgiveness to this paralyzed man. Now, some people try to downplay that Jesus was making some kind of divine claim by saying that when he forgave the man, what he really meant was something like, God forgives you. you know, you're forgiven by God, and that, that's all that he was saying. 
But that's not how the scribes understood Jesus' words, and that's not what Jesus said in, in response to the scribes. Jesus could have just said, whoa, 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 that's a crazy misunderstanding. You guys shouldn't be thinking that that's what I'm claiming. Instead, he responded and said that you may know that I've got power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, man, rise, get up. I want you to know that I can forgive sins. He knew that they thought that he claimed to have that authority, and he wanted them to know that he did and does have the authority to forgive sins. And the, the whole idea of that is that Jesus comes around acting like God. Why does Jesus come around acting like God? Because he is God. So he's acting like God. It says in Exodus 34, verse 7, this is God's description of himself. He says, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And Jesus came as God in the flesh, walked amongst us, and he claimed the exclusive right to forgive because he's divine. So Jesus came along doing God things. John called Jesus uh, the word in his gospel. Remember that in John chapter 1, he calls Jesus the word. That's his title for him. And he says that the word was there at the beginning. You know, when all things started, the word or Jesus, he was already there. John says he was with God. And then John says, and he was God. And that all things were made through him. This is from John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Then John went on to say that that word, the one who was at the beginning, who was God and who was with God, it says in John 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the, the eternal uh, creator God uh, came to live among us. And this is, this is who we're learning about when we study Jesus. Jesus is divine. Okay, So that's, that's the first thing I wanted you to see. Jesus is divine. Secondly, I think the text also shows us that, number two, we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. Okay, this is what, what our primary need is presented as in this passage, that we need forgiveness. Now, Jesus knew this. The man is lowered down to him. Everyone there expected and hoped that Jesus would heal him. They wanted to see the paralytic walk, and they're all wondering, like, could he, can he really do it? Can, can he? We've seen him, you know, he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, that's, you know, one degree of difficulty. We've seen him handle some demons. But can he deal with this man who is lying on a bed paralyzed? And they perhaps even knew this man and knew how many years he'd been paralyzed. Maybe born that way or maybe he'd been injured at some point in his life. We don't know. But they want to know, can he heal this man? But, and, and I should mention as well how this society often viewed illness and injury. They thought that disabilities were a sign of personal sin. You know, when Jesus came, he started correcting this thinking, but they still had it when, as he walked there in Capernaum. Personal brokenness is sometimes a result of personal sin, but it's always a result of universal sin. You, you might remember the, this mistake being made in the book of Job uh, through Job's life. Job fell under great trial and difficulty. There was you know, death, and he lost his wealth, and he fell uh, ill under great sickness. And he knew that he was innocent before God, that he'd been walking righteously with God. But what did all of his friends suppose? They supposed, you must be doing something wrong. There's got to be some kind of secret sin that you've committed 
that has led you into this kind of life and in this kind of trial. And it was an extremely unbiblical view, but unfortunately, it's a view that a lot of people, even Christians today, still hold. We imagine in our minds that if we walk with God, then we'll have a trial-free existence. And then on the flip side, we would then imagine that if our lives have trials, that we must be doing something wrong, that there must be some kind of mistake that we have made. And in that era, that's how they thought. That's how they felt. And so when they saw this paralyzed man, they thought, you did something, or your parents did something to have caused this paralysis. All that said, though, it seems that this man also thought of himself as a sinner because he does not object when Jesus doesn't speak a healing into his life but speaks forgiveness into his life. He knew himself that forgiveness was his deepest need. You see, this is one of the, the, the main ideas of this passage. Jesus looks at this man, and he sees what he truly, actually needs. Now, my guess is that if you pulled 100 people out of that scene before any of the forgiveness or any of the healing occurred, and you asked 100 people, maybe even 100 people from this room today, this morning, and you showed them or showed us this man lying on his bed, and, and asked the question, what is this man's greatest need? What thing could be done for this man that would so universally change and alter his being? What is it that he most needs in life? What would be the biggest game changer in his existence? I think many of us, if not all of us, would have said a healing. That his paralysis would be fixed that he'd be able to walk, that he could use his hands and his feet, and, and that his spinal cord would be healed and, and, and no longer in disrepair, and he could walk and talk and do all of these things that someone who is healthy and whole is able to do. But Jesus does not see that man this way. He looks at this man and sees past his paralysis and into his heart and sees a bigger need than what we would normally see. And I am thankful for this in Jesus. I'm thankful that Jesus knows what we really need. You see, so often we focus on our circumstances when Jesus wants to deal with the root. We ask God to remove us from a trial, but he'll sometimes leave us in it because of our deeper need. I remember one time I was assigned, you know, back in, my, back in the day, in ministry life, I was assigned a ministry task that I did not want to do. It was an area of responsibility in the church. It was just something that I did not want to do. You know, I would read about Paul asking the Lord to remove from him his thorn in the flesh, and I was like, Lord, this is my thorn in the flesh. <laughs> I did not want to do this, but it had been assigned to me. It was given to me, and I just, no matter how I, hard I tried, I could not get out of this responsibility. But as the Weeks turned into months, and the months turned into years. What I quickly began to learn was that this was the very thing that I needed to do so that God could shape and mold me into the kind of person that he wanted me to become. You see, the Lord, he always knows best. He knows what we actually need. And so Jesus looks at this man, and he forgives him because this is his deepest need. You see, the Bible, listen to me now, the Bible presents human suffering as ultimately residing in our separation from God. Not in our physical condition, not in our illnesses, but ultimately in our separation from God. 
Without closeness to God, we're without true peace and joy. We're designed to know God. So if sin separates us from him, how can we find fulfillment? Maybe to illustrate this, you could imagine a little toddler who, because of some tragedy, is taken away from their parents. You know, they're immediately going to yearn for the parents that they've lost. Where's my mommy? Where's my daddy? But even if the separation is permanent and they begin to cope, you know, over the years with the fact that they've been separated from their biological parents, even if the separation is long-term, there will still be a deep longing within them, a grief for that which was lost. Everything about their biology and everything about their psychology will cry out for their parents. Their parents. I, I want that. I need a connection to them and to that. And this is what we are like. We're designed to know God, but our sin separates us from him because he is holy. So we need forgiveness above all else so that we can be reunited with him. And this story shows us that forgiveness can be found in Jesus Christ. He can forgive us of our sins. Amen? All right. A third thing I want you to see from this story is just real simple. People need friends. Okay, People need friends. Just the paralyzed man, could he bring himself to Jesus? No. He was helpless. He needed someone to pick him up and bring him to Christ. And these guys were great friends, don't you think? I mean, they just like gave it everything they had. There was no like, oh, you know, hey, sorry, man. Looks like it's crowded today, you know. We'll, just, we'll try another day, you know. There was none of that. You know, they get to the house. They were creative. There was nothing that could stop them, you know. Maybe even the paralytic said like, man, it looks really full. I don't know if today's my day. And they're like, no, that's not true. There's a staircase up to the rooftop. We're going to start digging up that you know, rooftop, we're going to lower you down to Jesus. Somebody was probably peeking in the window or whatever, trying to find out what corner of the house Jesus was in so they could pick the right corner and just start picking away right above where Jesus was. I mean, these guys were persistent in bringing this man to Jesus. And, and listen to me, I think that our world is in need of persistent, loving, creative Christ followers who will stop at nothing to introduce others to Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, but the, the question, though, that, that we have to ask when we think about that is um, real simple. Just It's this. Are we good at that? <laughs> you know, are we good at that? Now, I, I think we're a great church. I think we love Jesus. You know, I think we, we want people to know him, to know the word. I think we love our community so much. You know, I, I think we're about Christ and, and his word. One, one family told me recently in, in their house that their sons were, were talking, and one of their sons asked the question, like, you know, why is the Bible so big? You know, why is the Bible so big? Why is there just so many books in it, so many chapters, so many stories? And the other little boy interrupted before the parents could respond and said, it's because it's a way for for the Bible to make Jesus famous. You know, that was kind of his statement, you know, which is our vision as a church, the fame of Jesus, that people would know and love and glorify and honor him. But 
That said, though that's what we want, I think a lot of times, just practically speaking, we find often that it's hard for us to reach out with the love of Jesus. Sometimes it's hard because a lot of people in our modern world have bought into the narrative that the church is what's wrong with the world. And, you know, to, to folks that have believed that the church is an impediment to real progress and real peace. And this can be a legitimate obstacle in sharing the love of Jesus with somebody else. But let's not try to act like this is the only obstacle. Uh, Sometimes there's a lack of boldness or a lack of zeal, uh, apathy. Uh, Disobedience is also another obstacle, if we're honest. And then sometimes there's just the lack of opportunity. You know, who, who is God giving me an open door with? I just don't see a lot of opportunity. But, but let me talk to you about one um, obstacle uh, today. Uh, I think often there's an inability for believers, for modern believers, to speak intelligently about the issues our society is most concerned about. Frankly, a lot of Christians just go along with the issues that our society is most concerned about. And in our cur- current cultural moment, Uh, People are very concerned with, specifically, one big litmus test for a lot of people is uh, the church's stance on sexuality and gender issues. Okay, and our our church, uh, at least, and lots of other churches on the peninsula, have seen the folly of ignoring clear teleological and biological indicators of what is good for society. In other words, uh, there are certain things that God has made evident through the cosmos and through anatomy And then on top of that, we have the clear teaching of Scripture, which helps us understand uh, biblical sexual ethic. So we already know we can't bend our views to that of our culture. And we also know that it would be extraordinarily unloving and uncaring to affirm or promote uh, styles of life that are actually, at the end of the day, harmful to an individual or harmful to a society. We know that that's not what love looks like. Still, we know that people are being decimated by the sexual revolution. And my heart, at least, breaks for young people uh, who are left in its wake, you know, who have tried the claims that our culture has made, and their hearts have been broken because they've believed a lie. So to help us become better friends to people who have been hurt and, and will be hurt by the moral revolution that our world is proposing. Uh, There are a few ways that we want to help you this year. Uh, One is, on my website, each month I've been doing a little update, and I give a book recommendation as part of that monthly update. Last month I recommended a book that I'd love for you to read called Confronting Christianity. I've talked about it a couple times, and you can find it online. But this next month, in March... Uh, I'm going to recommend a book by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body, and it will help you, I think, uh, break down the worldview that so many people have to understand the Christian worldview a little bit better. And both of these books will build your ability to lovingly speak about the Bible's healthy and life-giving view of sexuality and gender. The second thing that I'd love for you to do is on May 19th, come to our Tuesday night church training forum on that night. We're not going to be in Genesis or Galatians that night, but that night we're going to have a man named Beckett Cook who holds a master's degree from the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He's going to come to speak to us. He's agreed to come and speak with us. 
A decade ago, over a decade ago, Beckett was a gay man in Hollywood who'd achieved great success as a set designer in the fashion industry. But one day, he was at a very popular coffee shop down in Southern California, and there was a group of young believers that were having a Bible study, and he began engaging in conversation with them. They invited him to church. He found Jesus, and he left his gay identity for a new identity in Jesus Christ. And uh, I can't wait for you to hear his story. It's very touching and beautiful, and I think will also be instructive for so many of us. And then for the women at Calvary, uh, a third thing I'd like to hold out to you is to please make plans to attend next fall's women's conference. It looks like we're, we're blessed to have um, secured Dr. Julie Slattery to come and speak to us. She's written many books, one of them called Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design, and Why It Matters. And she leads a ministry called Authentic Intimacy. And her teachings that weekend will be incredibly helpful in understanding biblical sexuality. And I think in things like this, uh, we will be greatly helped to be better friends to our world than uh, if we're uninformed and not able to, uh, you know, clearly talk about these issues. Okay, by the way, both of these authors I just mentioned, Beckett and Julie, like I said, they have great books out. And each one of their books would help you gain vocabulary and understanding to lovingly answer those who are wondering if your Christianity is hostile to others because you don't embrace the current view of sexual, uh, sexuality and gender that our culture holds. And listen to me right now. Some of you, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have begun to think that the most loving response to everything in our world today is the affirmation of the new sexual ethic. And for you, these books will help you learn how unloving that response actually is. Okay, but, but again, all this is to help us become better friends and people who can remove every hindrance and get people to Jesus. Okay, that, that's the goal, all right? If, if, you've, if you've thought in your mind that the goal is to win a culture war, get that idea out of your head. That's an unchristian kind of idea. That's what we are doing, we are fighting other people at war. That's, that's not what we're doing. We realize that there are beliefs that people hold to that hurt them. Jesus, when he saw people believing things that hurt them, his heart broke for them. And he wanted them to know the truth. Okay, so that, that's a, an all-important attitude and perspective that we must have. Okay, so being good friends. And then lastly, number four from this story, I think we can see from this story that number four, everyone needs faith. Everyone needs to have faith. Okay, th this passage shows us the power of faith. Okay, that's why I've said it this way. Everyone needs faith. You see, what does it say in verse five? They, they lowered the man to Jesus, and what does it say? Jesus saw their faith. In other words, he looked at the four men digging up that roof, and he knew what he was seeing. He was seeing pure faith that day. Okay, now, this doesn't mean that Jesus looked up on the roof and mystically looked into their hearts, and he's like, I perceive deep within there is faith. No, he just looked at what they were doing. <laughs> he saw their actions, and he realized these men have faith. They believe. This is how we're meant to see faith. You see, a lot of times we talk about faith like it's this deep personal, quiet, internal thing that doesn't ever do anything. That's not faith. 
Faith is active. It produces action. Those men believed that Jesus could heal their friends, so they acted out by bringing him to Jesus. James said in James 2, verse 17, that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Remember one time, Christina, when we were uh, new or married, for my birthday one year, she bought me uh, uh, the gift of going skydiving. I don't know if our marriage like wasn't going well or what, but <laughs> but it meant that I had to go tandem with the instructor because I'd you know never been before. So I could say all day long as the plane went up that I trusted the instructor, but at some point I had to strap in and I had to jump out of the plane as an evidence. I trust you. I trust that you're going to do what you've said that you are going to do. That was the evidence that I believed that he'd protect me from death. Okay, but that's how Mark presents faith. He presents it as something that's active. It's alive. If it's present on the inside, you'll see it on the outside. Internal belief leads to external action. Okay, before we take communion this morning, let me give you some concluding uh, applications, and then we'll pray and, and take communion as a church, which is our custom right now on the first Sunday of the month together. Okay, number one, allow Jesus to decide what you need most. Allow Jesus to decide what you need most. Some of you know this. You've learned this lesson. I remember being 16 years old, and I was not walking with the Lord, not doing well, and I got in a very terrible car accident and fractured my second lumbar in my spine and was close to it being a real significant injury, uh, but it was, it was serious. And I remember in that moment sensing, okay, apparently the Lord, as he's looking at my life, he knows that what I need more than the ability to walk right now, because I couldn't for a little while, what I need more than that is I need to refocus on him. I need to focus on him. So we have to let Jesus be the one to decide what we need most. Number two, allow Jesus to decide what you need first. Okay, I know this, you, you think, okay, that sounds similar to needing most and needing first. But you see, sometimes we have these legitimate desires and things that the Lord has placed upon our hearts. You know, I want companionship. Well, that comes from the Lord. God has not asked us to be alone. We might find companionship romantically. We might find it in friendships or Christian community or in all of those. But allow Jesus to decide what you need first. Perhaps what you need first is consecration, holiness, to learn how to be dependent upon him. Number three, shift from war to love and compassion. I just talked about this. You know, the idea that uh, we're in some kind of war with a group of people, that's not at all the case. Uh, We want to operate with love and compassion. Now, I've just put forward the idea that I think that love and compassion means that we will lovingly stick to the truth and that we won't bend the truth for for anything. But we have to do this with a compassionate heart that, that... you know, our hearts break for those who have been sucked into things which harm them. And, and listen to me right now. I think this is especially important for our church because I know the Lord just keeps over the years putting on my heart over and over again uh, the, the people who are in the next generations coming up who are going to basically be like refugees because of the things that they've believed. And they're just going to be so hurt and harmed And they're going to need a loving and compassionate church who has the truth to reach out to them and and provide a a community for them to be able to grow and to be able to relearn what the truth is. Number four, see learning as part of being equipped for ministry. 
This is why I'm encouraging you to read and think and come to these things to wrestle with the word, uh, because learning will help you do ministry. Uh, the less you know, it's, it's, like, it's, you know, it's like a person that's got like two bullets in the chamber, you know? It's like, well, I got these two bullets. I know these two scriptures. That's all I got, you know? And you just keep going to the same two scriptures over and over again. Well, the more you grow, the more you learn, uh, the more you'll have to offer the people around you. Number five, see how forgiveness within leads to bodily transformation. What I mean by this is kind of something I've been wrestling with throughout the week as I've looked at this text, is you see this man, there's something broken on his outside, but also something broken inside. Jesus fixes that which is inside, and then the outside follows. And I, I just, to me, I see a, a, um, a great picture for the way that sanctification works. You know, in our society and world, people basically are saying, what is going on on your inside? And whatever's there, get your body to obey what's going on on the inside. Jesus says, what's going on on the inside actually needs to be cleansed and forgiven. And then I'll change your outside to mirror the new inside that I gave to you. And, uh, and I've just seen the Lord do that in my life in so many ways, you know, that, that the, the, the stuff on the outside, it follows what Jesus does on the inside. And then number six, lastly, get active, you know. Let's, let's do stuff for Jesus and uh, have faith.